Tipu Sultan was a junior contemporary of the last powerful Mughal emperor Aurangzeb. What Aurangzeb did in a span of fifty uh, years throughout most of India, Tipu did the same thing in just four states in a span of about seventeen years in South India. The barbarian Tipu Sultan tied naked Christians and Hindus to the legs of elephants and made the elephants move around. till the bodies of the helpless victims were torn to pieces we have tipu's own words with the grace of prophet muhammad and allah almost all hindus in calicut are converted to islam only the borders of cochin state a few hindus are still not converted i am greatly determined to convert them very soon i consider this as jihad to achieve that objective hello and welcome and uh, at the outset let me say that it's a really a great pleasure and a delight to address this uh, august gathering a lot of respected elders from whom i have learned like uh, dr l and uh, sarindu mukherjee other people dr shankar sharan they are all in the audience it's a matter of great honor for me and i would also like to express my gratitude to shrijan foundation rahul diwan and his brilliant team for extending this warm welcome to me so after that uh, intro uh, i'll get straight to the point so because the topic of uh, my address relates to history we can begin with some main concept i promise not to take long time on this and you know kind of bore you so quickly uh, this relates to the manner in which we regard history itself as an academic discipline as a way of understanding the world and more importantly as a way of understanding ourselves so much of the way in which we are taught history and how we regard history comes from a formal education needless to say from a school and college but this education does not teach us how our ancestors how our forefathers regarded history or what loosely speaking or what is the native conception of history what is the rooted indian conception of history this none of our schools and our so called education teaches us so as all you know as all of you know uh, the indian word for history is itihasa which can be split into three parts iti plus ha plus asa which literally means it happened thus so i illustrated with uh, this with a couple of examples in our tradition ramayana mahabharata and sometimes even the puranas are collectively known as itihasa so in north india all of you are familiar uh, that it's very common that you take it for granted to hear terms like ram katha ramayan katha bharat katha and variations thereof so here we need to focus on the word katha which stands subconsciously nobody needs to teach this to us we know it subconsciously that the word katha while it stands for story its implied meaning is actually itihasa which can loosely be understood as history but we'll uh, look at that in some detail later the other important way to understand the word itihasa is that in our tradition itihasa is recited 
it is recited as poems it is recited as it is set to tune it is sung as songs which is completely distinct from merely being read in the form of a book or whatever narrative so for example uh, at least i'm i'm from south india from karnataka so we celebrate sita kalyana which is sita ram ka shaadi and we also celebrate parvati kalyana which is parvati's marriage with shiva and all kinds of uh, you know folklore which revolves around stories from our puranas from ramayana and mahabharata stories kathas upakathas episodes sub episodes from our episode uh, from our what is known as itihasa but how are these things done ram katha uh, sita ram kalyana how are these done they are celebrated as festivals they are celebrated as festivals in our temples in various mathas on different actual uh, festivals like navratri you name it so this conception of history what does it symbolize it symbolizes a living tradition and most importantly it symbolizes a long line of civilizational and cultural continuity and it is not this does not come by just memorizing some facts that you know rama was born on such and such a day and he did this and he did that and he fought this war on some random time in history it is not just a memorization of events and dates one can also compare this contrast this with say for example the greek epics iliad odyssey all these stories these epics in the west they came from the west what is their fate now what is the condition today they are not celebrated it is not a living tradition it was completely cut off so iliad odyssey all these things currently are just studied in universities and you know schools colleges only out of academic interest it is no longer a living tradition so when you contrast this you will understand the uh, full significance uh, when i say you know what uh, i mean by itihasa so long story short in our tradition history or itihasa is not merely a collection of facts it is a value now a man is thirsty and there's water so for example this gentleman is thirsty and there's some water there i fetch water and give it to him and he quenches his thirst with that action that journey between thirst be between being thirsty and actually fulfilling it is the meaning of the word value so then uh, we come to stuff like goals of history and uh, i i will give a disclaimer saying that you know whatever i said so far does not mean that i reject uh, you know the study of history as a scientific study of our past whichever country it may be so an honest history from that perspective must lead to two things first is a truthful understanding of our past and second is to imbibe within ourselves the courage to face the truth of the past to digest past mistakes and learn from them this is because we cannot build a robust society and a robust country based on false and distorted readings of the past or based on the foundations of false history or distorted history and as far as i see it there is no such thing as a goal of history 
so to say because the trajectory of the historical establishment i don't I hate to use that word but anyway the trajectory of the indian history establishment started with you know having something called a purpose and a goal of history as far as i am concerned the quest for the truth is only the goal of history that's the only goal and nothing else such goals have led to a massive politicization of history especially in india more so in india and all of you here in this room uh, i'm sure understand and are aware of the kind of consequences that this kind of politicization of history in india has uh, you know taken us to what uh, how far so uh, i'll begin with a small uh, a very humorous quote by an american scholar of history he says uh, about politics he says this and i quote the first lesson of politics is to forget the first lesson of history so i'll repeat that the first lesson of politics is to forget the first lesson of history so <clears throat> uh let's look at another quote it is an ominous sign of the time that indian history is being viewed in official circles in the perspective of recent politics the official history of the freedom movement of india starts with the premises that india lost independence only in the 18th century and has thus an experience of subjection to a foreign power for only two centuries real history on the other hand teaches us that the major part of india lost independence about 5 centuries before and merely changed masters in the 18th century most of you know are aware of who said this this was by uh, acharya r c majumdar one of the titans of uh, uh, historical scholarship and he wrote this when he says recent politics he was referring to 1948 so in in that period in 1948 49 uh, the likes of you know eminent historians like romila thapar were they were not anywhere around the scene so what happened to the study of indian history from then on till now is you know it's a well known story and i don't need to repeat it but uh, in putting it in one line the enormous politicization and the downfall of history as a discipline it has been near total and all of you are familiar with uh, arun shauri's book on um, these eminent historians the technology line fraud so but in practical terms this politicization of history simply means this <clears throat> at least three generations of our children have learnt this distorted history false history about their own country and culture and some specimens some human incarnations which are the products of this distorted history include the world famous swara baskar and a gang so what have been the some consequences of this kind of distorted history and you know some major themes is that india never had a great civilization and culture all great elements of indian civilization and culture was a gift of alien invaders starting with the aryans who came from outside native indians were barbaric they were regressive they were cowardly they were spineless they were weak and therefore they were invaded repeatedly 
So when this kind of absolute nonsense is taught from early school level right up to university, we should not be surprised, we should not be sad that when these kids grow up, they choose to migrate out of India. Your own education teaches your own kids that their own culture, their own country and they, specifically them as Hindus in general are a bunch of buffoons, idiots, weaklings and completely uncultured people. This is what our textbooks teach our children. So, but to pull off, you know, this, this kind of distortion, this kind of sweeping generalization about an entire civilization, you're talking about real people. To pull off this kind of industrial scale distortion, its history has to be distorted on an equally industrial scale. And nowhere is this distortion most glaring than in writing about the history of the nearly thousand year long Muslim rule of India. So here are some of the defining uh, characteristics of uh, medieval Muslim rule in India. I don't need to uh, you know, dwell at it. Most of you know this. So it was characterized by all round oppression of Hindus, constant assault on their way of life, their women being you know, abducted at will, uh, desecration of their traditions, customs, institutions, large scale temple destructions, forced conversions, jazia and so on. You know. uh, it was an Islamic law, I think during Khilji's period, that the kafir would be stopped for no reason by a Muslim official who would sit on the horse and he would his mouth would be made to open and this official would spit inside his mouth and he had to shut up and swallow it and not show any sign of disgust on his face. This was law. So all the current historical distortions that we are familiar with in the last uh, 70 odd years are aimed precisely at whitewashing, hiding and even denying these brutal, uncomfortable historical truths which were actually realities. Our ancestors lived this life on a daily basis. So, and the same principle of historical distortion is at work in the case of Tipu Sultan, the tyrant of Mysore. So, Tipu Sultan was a junior contemporary of the last powerful Mughal emperor Aurangzeb. What Aurangzeb did in a span of uh, 50 years throughout most of India, Tipu did the same thing in just four states in a span of about 17 years in South India. Your majesty would soon proceed to prosecute a holy war against the infidels. Should those infidel Brahmins, that means he's referring to the Marathas, should those infidel Brahmins direct their power, the hands of the heroes of the faith of our Muslim soldiers in this part of the world shall be raised for their punishment. We should unite in carrying on a holy war against these infidels. Delhi, the seat of government of the Mohammedan faith, Delhi, the seat of government of the Mohammedan faith, has been reduced to this state of ruin so that the infidels altogether prevail now. We should unite in carrying a holy war against the infidels and free these regions of Hindustan in the service of Islam. So this was Tipu Sultan's letter to the Afghan king named 
Zaman Shah, written sometime in 1794 or 95. Uh, this letter was part of uh, Tipu's invitation to Zaman Shah to invade India and establish the sword of Islam in the country and free it from the darkness of the Kafirs. So this letter is just one tiny sample of hundreds of such letters that Tipu wrote to various people like the Caliph in Turkey and also to the French uh, whom he invited to occupy India and then they would, uh, he dreamt of sharing the spoils of uh, the conquest. So over the last 40 odd years and up to the present time, this Islamic bigot Tipu Sultan has been hailed in the following terms. He was a freedom fighter, he was a tiger, he was a liberator of what I don't know. He was a patron of Hinduism, he was a tolerant ruler and even more hilariously, uh, one Kannada article in a mainstream newspaper described Tipu as a rocket scientist. I am not kidding you, I am not making this up. So let's puncture these myths one by one. So we begin with something called the sword of Tipu Sultan. So Tipu Sultan's rehabilitation as a freedom fighter roughly begins with a secular, uh, I don't know, eminence, okay. With a secular eminence named Bhagwan S. Gidwani who wrote a novel named uh, The Sword of Tipu Sultan. Most of you are familiar with this title. So this novel was not based on any sort of history but it was based on this guy's, this Bhagwan S. Gidwani's imagination running really wild. So, Sword of Tipu Sultan was made into a TV series by Sanjay Khan. Most of you might have uh, uh, seen that. It was telecast on Doordarshan. And after a few weeks, it evoked widespread outrage and a lawsuit was filed against Sanjay Khan by the Bombay Kerala Samaja. So this fake image of Tipu Sultan as a freedom fighter was later escalated by the dear departed by the late Girish Karnad who wrote a dream called Tipu in a Kanasugaru which means Tipu's dreams which was again heavily borrowed from Gidwani's novel uh, and in 2011 and 12 there was a proposal by the then Union Minister for Minority Affairs named Mr. Rahman Khan who unfortunately happens to be from my state. It was submitted to the central government. The aim of the proposal was to establish an Islamic university near Srirangapatana named in Tipu's honour. So Srirangapatana was the seat of power from where Tipu ruled. So this uh, same Rahman Khan has also taken a DPS school, Delhi Public School franchisee in Bangalore. So, but apart from all these guys, guess who else has honored Tipu? The President of India. Pakistan. The President also. Of India. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we'll come to that in the Q&A. So Pakistan has named one of its missiles in the honor of Tipu and uh, the other, other missile names include Ghaznavi, Ghauri, Abdali and Babar. So what does the oral tradition in Karnataka and Kerala say about Tipu? So in Kurg and uh, 
Sakleshpur region, street dogs are named after Tipu. And a branch of the Iyengar community hailing from Melkote near Mysore, it for generations together, it still doesn't celebrate Deepavali. From this, I'm talking about a period that began roughly in the late 18th century. From then on, one sect of the one lineage of uh, Melkote Iyengars, they do not celebrate Deepavali because it was precisely on the day of Deepavali back then that Tipu massacred more than 10,000 Iyengars in Melukoti. And uh, several Kodava, that is Kurgi Kodavas, several Kodava Muslim families still retain their original Hindu surnames, their last names, family name. They still retain their original names uh, despite forcible conversion of their ancestors by Tipu. Then the Kerala oral tradition remembers Tipu's visit to the Malabar as the deadly Padayotam, which means a military march, uh, where he literally burnt down Malabar, I mean, Koli Code and several parts of Malabar right down to the ground. Only all that was left was ashes. So, this the Kerala local uh, legends remember this as Padayotam. And then we come to the actual historical records for those who are interested to research more on Tipu. Uh, then that is the other irony. There's look around you, there is a wealth of historical records that still exist, which shows the exact opposite of what Tipu is portrayed. And some of these records are written by Tipu's own contemporaries and by his own biographer. <clears throat> so I'll give you a partial list. Uh, Haider Ali and Tipu Sultan by Levin B. Bowring, Mysore Gazetteer, Volume 1 and 2, Selected Letters of Tipu Sultan by Colonel William Kirkpatrick, Nishan E. Haideri by Mir Hussein Ali Kirmani, who was Tipu's official biographer, The Malabar Manual by William Logan, and some British archives at uh, Fort St. George and Fort St. Williams. So, in spite of availability of all these, you know, tons of documents, these are primary sources that tell you the real story of that period. It is astonishing that Tipu is still hailed as a patriot and tiger and whatever, that this notion, this image of Tipu still persists. So, I'll list out a few key features of uh, um, Tipu's uh, rule. It was a regime of military and economic terror. It was characterized by unnecessary destructive raids throughout South India, most notably in Malabar and Kurg. And uh, it was also notable for the sheer scale of rural destru destruction. Entire villages, towns, uh, countryside, they were all completely burnt. In, for example, Kushalnagar, Talakaveri, Madikeri, Napoklu. So, when you travel to Kurk from Mysore, you get all these uh, uh, major towns and uh, uh, villages completely burnt to the ground. And Calicut or Kori Code was uh, burnt to the ground, as I just uh, told you. This Calicut was a hub of spice trade for several centuries, and Tipu's just one destructive raid changed its character forever and spice trade there came to a permanent halt 
for nearly 40 to 50 years. And all these places were entirely depopulated. There's no human habitation after this guy uh, invaded. And those few of them who survived, the weak and the old, all these people, women, they were forcibly converted or killed brutally. So another key feature of uh, Tipu's rule was the large-scale destruction of, Tipu, uh, of uh, Hindu temples. Uh, you look at the Malabar manual, it gives you a, com a detailed list of all such temples and I have listed only about 56 in my book, uh, just the major ones that were destroyed. So Lewis Rice writes in his um, Mysore Gazetteer and I quote, In the vast empire of Tipu Sultan, on the eve of his death, there were only two Hindu temples having daily functional pujas. Only two. Tipu also Islamized almost every facet of his administration by A. Giving Muslim names to original Hindu cities and towns. Uh, Sakleshpur was called Manjarabad. Uh, thankfully, it was changed back. <clears throat> so he changed the units of measurement of weights, distance and time so that uh, it corresponded to some aspect of Prophet Muhammad's life. He founded a new calendar and he named each year uh, after a synonym given to Muhammad. And he changed the official administrative language of the Mysore kingdom from Kannada to Farsi. So that Farsi was not real Farsi uh, and I will come to that in a bit. Uh, the other key features is the complete devastation of Mysore state's economy uh, through reckless and expensive unprovoked military campaigns. He appointed the incompetent officers to key posts and the only qualification to occupy these bureaucratic posts was that you had to be a Muslim and bonus, if you were a Hindu who converted, you got a fast track promotion. And all his wanton attacks, I just mentioned some of, I'll add some other uh, places which he attacked. Travancore, uh, Nizam of Hyderabad, Gutti Adoni in uh, Andhra Pradesh, Kur, Malabar, Bijapur, Raichur, that Krishna Godavari uh, belt. And he also had a habit of, uh, you know, repeatedly dishonoring war treaties and peace treaties with the British and other rulers of South India. So, I'll read out a longish quote uh, just to show you the a very very brief glimpse into the nature of Tipu's uh, aggression, his invasions, and uh, here is an eyewitness account by Father Bartholomew. Quote: First, a core of thirty thousand barbarians who butchered everybody on the way, followed by the field gun unit. Tipu was, uh, was riding on an elephant behind which another army of 30,000 soldiers followed. Most of the men and women were hanged in Calicut. First mothers were hanged with, first mothers were hanged with the children tied to their necks. The barbarian Tipu Sultan tied naked Christians and Hindus to the legs of elephants and made the elephants move around till the bodies of the helpless victims were torn to pieces. Temples and churches were ordered to be burned down, desecrated and destroyed. Hindu women were forced to marry Mohammedans and similarly their men 
were forced to marry Mohammedan women. Those Christians and Hindus who refused to be honored with Islam were ordered to be killed by hanging immediately. And then we have another uh, eyewitness account by a German Christian missionary named Guntest and he says, accompanied by an army of 60,000, Tipu Sultan came to Koli Code, Calicut in 1788 and raised it to the ground. It is not even possible to dis uh, describe the brutalities committed by that Islamic barbarian from Mysore. So now we come to Colonel William Kirkpatrick. Uh, after the fort of Srirangapatna fell to uh, the British, a lot of stuff uh, was recovered from uh, uh, what belonged to Tipu. Out of that was a bunch of letters and Kirkpatrick you know, kind of compiled all of them and published them, published about 2000 selected letters. These were letters that Tipu wrote to himself every morning sitting on the shit pot. Sorry for the language. And uh, Kirkpatrick writes about the importance of these letters and I quote, the importance of these letters consists in the vivid illustration which they afford of the talents and disposition of their extraordinary author who is here successively and repeatedly delineated in colors from his own pencil as the cruel and relentless enemy, the intolerant bigot or furious fanatic, the oppressive and unjust ruler, the perfidious negotiator. So, they say that it's always the best when it comes from the, directly from the mouth of the horse. So, we have Tipu's own words. With the grace of Prophet Muhammad and Allah, almost all Hindus in Calicut are converted to Islam. Only the borders of Cochin state, a few Hindus are still not converted. I am greatly determined to convert them very soon. I consider this as jihad to achieve that objective. This Tipu wrote in a letter to one of his military officers named uh, Syed Abdul Dulai in 1788 because he was so happy that he had burned down Calicut to the ground. Another letter, I have achieved a great victory recently in Malabar and over 4 lakh Hindus were converted to Islam. I am now determined to march against the accursed Raman Nair. Now it's important to remember that Raman Nair was the chieftain of a relatively small uh, kingdom or a bunch of principalities. He and his Nair army bet back Tipu Sultan twice. In one battle, he fell down from his palki and literally ran like a coward to save his life. So, he wanted to take revenge on Raman Nair and then uh, one more later, during the siege of uh, Naragund in 1786. In the event of your being obliged to assault the place, that is Naragund, every living creature in it, whether man, woman, old or young, child, dog, cat, owl or anything else must be put to the sword. One more. The exciters of sedition in the Kur country not looking to the consequences have raised their heads. Immediately we proceeded with the utmost speed and made prisoners of 40,000 Kurgs. 
then we carry them away from their native country and we raise them to the honors of Islam, which means they were forcibly converted. So, Tipu called his own kingdom as Khudadat Sarkar, meaning government of Khuda or Allah. And as we have seen, he left behind a bankrupt economy. And uh, more importantly, for everybody who says that uh, Tipu is a great hero and some kind of a reformer, here is a, a data point. Under Hyder Ali, before Hyder Ali died, the military force of Mysore was more than 1,20,000. Tipu reduced it to just 50,000 during the last his last battle, that's the fourth uh, uh, Carnatic War. So, Tipu's reckless war also left behind large-scale death and destruction in all of South India. Spice trade in, was totally destroyed in Kerala. We've seen all that. And more importantly, he, he caused a permanent change in the cultural character of several cities, most notably in Karnataka. For example, I uh, took, uh, I spoke to you about changing the official language from uh, Kannada. Uh, it was written in official documents in Mysore state were written in two languages, Marathi and Canada. Tipu changed this to Farsi and his whatever language policy has resulted in a bastardized language called which is called Urdu. But that is not Urdu. It's a horrible love child born out of wedlock of Urdu, some kind of Arabic, some kind of Farsi and some kind of Hindi and some kind of Kannada. So, if anybody knows uh, this Urdu in Karnataka, you might get this joke. I think uh, Vijay will get this. Katte ko pula ra dal ko mervanege karosu. What is this? <laughs> Put a garland around a donkey's neck and take it out in a procession. It's a mix of Dakini and Urdu yeah. and Kannada. So, this is the language. This is a language that Tipu uh, invented and. Uh, change the cultural character. So, from a patriot, national hero, freedom fighter, these are all one more of the more enduring myths without uh, basis in history and uh, a survey of that period shows a struggle for both economic and military power between uh, the French, the British, Marathas and Tipu Sultan in largely the theatre of South and Western India that includes uh, parts of Maharashtra also. So, Tipu's stated goal in his own words was to bring Islam, the infidel land, under the sword of Islam as the selected letters of Kirkpatrick shows. And uh, for all his, uh, you know, celebration as some kind of a great freedom fighter, he cultivated the French, he cultivated uh, deep friendships with the French to conquer the entire India and share the territory equally. There are and tons of letters that document this and he invited, uh, we saw in the beginning, I told you about his letters to the Afghani king Zaman Shah. He also sent similar invitations to the Turkish Caliph. And uh, the important point to note is that in Tipu's time, it was the East India Company who fought wars in India. It was not the British crown which directly fought wars in India. It was a commercial enterprise named East India Company. And 
the whole of india was not united under one single rule under a central rule whatever you want to call it but all of india was not united politically under one umbrella so the notion of tipu sultan fighting for india's freedom does not arise so if tipu is a freedom fighter why do we hesitate to call marathas who also fought the british why do we hesitate to call them as freedom fighters if tipu is a freedom fighter sirajuddaula is also freedom fighter if tipu is a freedom fighter nizam of hyderabad is also freedom fighter all of these fought both for their own dominions for economic and military uh, supremacy and not for any notion of independence or freedom of india why is also maharaja ranjit singh not regarded as a freedom fighter he fought some of the most decisive battles against the british and it was they who gave him the name line of punjab for the first time after nearly 300 or 400 centuries afghanistan had hindu population had hindu rule all because of maharaja ranjit singh so i'll uh, look at some closing notes uh, i'll say that the whitewashing or distorting historical truths lead to leads to friction in our own times because all of you know that to sustain one lie you have to utter you have to speak thousands of lies on the other hand it is better that we face unpleasant historical truths because at the most what you, what will you do you might punch each other in the face at the most nothing beyond that will happen but we can sit together at the table and see how you can move forward so accepting bitter historical truths and learning constructive lessons from them will also help avoid repeating such uh, uh, you know brutal history and the biggest example of this kind of truthful approach or lesson lessons learned from history in modern times is uh, uh, the various holocaust museums in germany and other parts of uh, the world so with that i think uh, uh, i can conclude this session and many thanks to sijan foundation and the entire team